son Robert just uh, a year ago took a church down in Connecticut, and uh, we spent 19 years in Connecticut uh, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's a long time ago, and we're glad to be home again. Um, as we come to God's words today, um, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter uh, 5. Uh, the, my text this morning will be from verse 22 of chapter 5 uh, through verse uh, 13 of chapter 6. <clears throat> uh, but before I read this uh, for you, I think it would be profitable if uh, I spoke to you a few moments about the context out of which this passage arises. Uh, we're jumping right into the middle of Exodus, so it's good to sort of get our minds and hearts uh, situated. Our text uh, is, comes before the time of the uh, plagues. At the end of chapter 2, we are told that the Israelites had cried out to the Lord uh, because of the suffering. Uh, and we hear that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Things are about to change for Israel. God at the burning bush has summoned Moses and commissioned him to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Moses is a rather reluctant leader. He begins by giving a few reasons why he ought not to be the one. He has a little trouble with speaking in public. Ah, we can solve that with Aaron. Uh, and after a while, he finally says, well, Lord, what do I say? Who do I say sent me? And in that great passage in Exodus 3.14, God speaks to Moses concerning this. He says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is to be the sacred name for Israel's covenant Lord, Yahweh. God also gives Moses some miraculous signs in order that the people would take seriously what he has to say, and that, that Pharaoh himself would listen to his call to let Israel go. Um, and finally, we find Moses and Aaron coming back to Egypt, or Moses returning to Egypt, and meeting, first of all, uh, with the elders of Israel, and explaining to them uh, Moses' encounter with God and God's uh, work that is about to begin to deliver them from their slavery. And they, and they really get on board at that moment. And then after that, he and Aaron go for the first time to Pharaoh. And he brings this, I was going to say request from the Lord, but really this demand from the Lord, from Yahweh. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. <clears throat> to which <clears throat> Pharaoh, uh, in my imagination anyway, with a sneer on his face and haughtiness in his voice replies, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. But Pharaoh doesn't just dismiss Moses and Aaron with a sneer. He commands his slave drivers to take away the straw that is being provided so that the Jews can build their bricks, make their bricks to build their, uh, uh, their structures. And so without the straw, the Jews had to make the same quantity of bricks at, while at the same time gathering the straw. And so this task, which has been so burdensome and onerous, only becomes worse. So now as we come to verse 22 of chapter 5, we find that Moses has been humiliated by Pharaoh and rejected by the Israelites. And so Moses turns to the great I Am, and he wants to know why. Here then, the text before us today. Then Moses turned to the Lord, and so to the Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit 
and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we do seek the work of your spirit, that your spirit would be present among us in such a way that our minds and hearts as well as our ears, hear the proclamation of your word, that our souls would be refreshed and strengthened and encouraged, and that we would love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes things don't turn out the way we hope. In fact, sometimes we do exactly what we believe, what we think that God wants us to do, and it turns out to be a complete disaster. I heard of a a young couple who believed God was calling them uh, to the mission field. Despite the opposition of their parents, who were not believers, they traveled overseas to a remote village in another land. But not long after they had arrived, one of their children contracted a rare, life-threatening disease. And the missionaries were forced to return home for medical care. Upon their return, their parents said to them, see, I told you not to go. These kinds of things happen all the time. A woman refuses to get serious with a man because he is not a believer. Now she is single, wondering whether she will have a husband, a family. An an employee refuses to work on the Sabbath, and in three months he's fired. Parents do everything they can to the best of their ability and with, with reliance on the Lord to raise their children, loving them, and teaching them things of Christ, only to watch them squander their love by turning away from the Lord. It happens often. A Christian does what God calls them to do, and from all appearances, it makes things worse. These kinds of developments make us start to wonder if we indeed did do the right thing. And maybe even wonder if God cares what happens to us. This is exactly what happened to Moses. This section begins with Moses seemingly at the end of his rope. He is exasperated. In the previous verses, he has endured a double defeat. Neither Pharaoh nor the Israelites want anything to do with him. 
And so as Moses returns to God, he plaintively asks, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Moses is challenging God. He is asking why he has brought evil on his people. It is as if to say, you know something, God, you're the one to blame. Why are you making my job harder? There's a certain copycat pattern that we find here in the text. Uh, In chapter 5 and verse 15, we find the Israelite uh, foremans, or excuse me, the Israelite uh, elders going to their foremans and finally to the uh, Pharaoh himself and saying, what what are you doing to us? You're no longer providing straw. You're, You're making it harder for us to do the things that you have demanded that we do. And they, they cry out, why, why do you treat your servants, your slaves, like this? Then in verse 21 of chapter 5, after getting absolutely no satisfaction from Pharaoh, the Israelite elders go to Moses and complain, you, Moses, you're the one to blame. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. It looks like everyone is looking for someone to blame, including Moses. If you look at verse 22, what we read, he is just one more in a series of complaints. Uh, Moses takes it to the top, to God. God, you're to blame. What is obvious at this point is that Moses is not much different from the other parties involved. Moses is not yet the stalwart leader he will later become. He still has much to learn about the God who is unwavering in keeping his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In effect, Moses is calling God's character into question. Moses is undone. His focus is on the disastrous outcome of his first encounter uh, with Pharaoh. His focus is not on the God who called him. To him, it seems like the events are skidding out of control. And Moses' conclusion is that God is actually bringing trouble on them. And so his cry at the end of verse 22, why did you ever send me? I'm not sure that's even the worst thing or the worst of Moses' complaints. At the end of verse 23, he grumbles, you have not delivered your people at all. Isn't that what you said you were going to do? If you stopped reading at the end of chapter 5, the question that might be foremost in your mind is, how is the Lord going to respond to Moses? Will he tolerate such a challenge? Shouldn't Moses show just a tad more respect to the great I am? To, To be fair, Moses does do something right here. 
in this complaining. Moses does what many of God's people do in scriptures. When they don't get it, they don't understand, they are perplexed with the ways of God. Moses takes his complaint to God and not everyone else. There is a car wash uh, I have frequented, and as you go through it, and you know, it's a long car wash, and at the end of it, you come out, your car is just being let go of the, uh, the mechanism, and there's this big sign, and the sign says, don't complain to your friends. Tell us. We'll fix it. I kind of appreciate that sentiment. You know how car washes are. They sometimes do things to your car you don't want them to do. And what people tend to do is go and tell everybody else what a terrible place it is. And they're saying, don't tell everybody else and ruin our business. We'll fix it. Tell us. And I say here, Moses at least goes directly to the Lord. So how does the Lord respond to Moses? A few lightning bolts striking nearby, a little earthquake to get his attention. Now, the wise guy inside of me, which my wife knows rather well, uh, would like to sort of paraphrase verse 6 this way. Excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 6 this way. What's your problem, Moses? I cut Pharaoh just where I want him. Here's what he said. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now is the right time to show his great saving power. Moses is confused and despondent. The people have all but turned their back on him. Pharaoh's pride is increasing by the minute. He's not worried about some minor deity from his slave people. And it is at this point in the unfolding drama that God's response is, now look what I will do. We have already seen what Moses has done. We have also seen what Pharaoh, the anti-God figure, has done. Now it was God's turn to act. And as we look at Yahweh's answer to Moses, there are a few things I want want us to see in the text overall. One of the important things to notice in this text is the repetition that Yahweh uses as he speaks to Moses. Now, Hebrew writing, you may well know this, that the Hebrew way of writing is characterized uh, by repetition. It's sort of short little succinct repetitions and sometimes larger uh, types of repetitions that we find in Scripture. We, we had one this morning, uh, uh, in our, I think in our prayer of adoration, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Jesus, as he speaks to Nicodemus, says, truly, truly, listen up, Nicodemus, this is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Now, our text this morning contains some of the larger forms of repetition. 
that encompasses more than the, the, immediate, ver- the, the immediate words. In verses 2 to 6, we find a use of repetition which is central to the message of the passage. It is found in the simple words, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, or even more literally, I am the I am. Four times in verses 2 to 6, we have this declaration, I am the I am. We're thinking about this, and this is really a fairly poor illustration because it's at such a lower level. But I, but I, but I remember how at times I, I, I had to speak to my children. My kids would sometimes be sort of full of themselves and be mouthing off and expect me somehow to just, oh, well, this is what it's like these days, to be impressed. And then I would just look at them, pause for a minute and say, I'm your father. And now normally, at that moment, they got the picture. So it is here. Yahweh is saying, I'm not the Israelite foreman. I'm not Pharaoh. I am the I am. Four times. I am the I am. There is a a level of gravitas that is hard to describe. But there's another level of repetition going on here. We are also being given a rehearsal what has already been said in the book of Exodus. A rehearsal of, of previous conversations God has had with Moses. We find the first of these in verse 2 that was the first of the I am the Lord statements. Which of course takes us back to Exodus 3.14, where God is answering Moses' question, what name shall I say has sent me? And God responds, I am who I am. I am has sent you. The second time, the second theme is found in, in verses 3 to 4, where Yahweh is saying, I'm the God of the patriarchs. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear that same thing rehearsed earlier in the book of Genesis, uh, Exodus several times. Moses is being reminded here that God is the God of history, of the God of the promises he has made to his people. And the third theme, which is repeated here, is found in verse 5, where he says, I have heard your complaint. Speaking of the Israelites, this takes us back again to Exodus 2, where where we first hear this speaking uh, of Israel, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God is not deaf. He's not doing something else. He hears. He knows. That is the kind of God he is. And now that truth is being repeated. Moses needs reminding. Moses needs to hear these things again. And you might say, wow, didn't he get it the first time? Well, 
Think of yourselves. Don't we need to hear this same thing over and over again? We need to hear the gospel over and over again. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves at those moments that we find ourselves wondering, what in the world's going on? By repeating these elements, God is saying to Moses, let's try it again. But this time, listen more carefully. Don't just listen with your ears. Listen with your, your mind and with your heart. I made a promise to the patriarchs that I have every intention of keeping. I know what is happening. I hear the groans. And I am now posed to do something about it. Stand back and watch. The first thing Yahweh says to Moses in verse 1 of chapter 6 is, Watch and see. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Notice what, what Yahweh says here. Now you will see. Things are ready now. Uh, Pharaoh is in a particularly stubborn mood. Now I will show you what I can do. It reminds me of Paul's words in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, speaking of the coming of Christ. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Not too soon, not too late, at just the right moment. <clears throat> because of my mighty hand, for no other reason, because of what I will do, the allegedly mighty Pharaoh will let you go. Hold on. Let me be a, more, a bit more precise here. He won't simply let you go. He will drive you out. He won't let you stay. Then you will see. Then you will know. The second thing Yahweh does as he answers Moses he answers the question, who am I? In verses 2 and 3, Moses has a pretty good handle on the circumstances he faces. He faces a stiff-necked people who are grumbling and rebellious. Not a particularly compliant bunch. They want nothing to do with Yahweh. He faces an arrogant and stubborn Pharaoh. I don't care what Yahweh says. This is what I say. The only question I want to hear from the Hebrews is when I tell you to jump is, how high? Oh, yes. Moses is well attuned to his circumstances. And let's be honest, they're daunting. The one thing Moses doesn't have a good handle on yet is, who is Yahweh? And God graciously answers in these two verses. The first answer is, I am the Lord. I am uh, the God of the burning bush. I am the God of the covenant. He goes on in verses 3 and 4 to say that he is making himself known to Israel in a fuller way. Here's what we read. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, 
but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. What is the Lord saying when he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but they did not know me as Yahweh. First thing I want to say is we need to be a little careful with how we look at this. What is not being said is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me one way, but now, hmm, special people that you are, you will get to know me in a completely different and new way. That's not what's being said. The difference is more a matter of emphasis and degree than a difference of kind. We find here, I think, a, a good example, example of what we call progressive revelation. As you follow the biblical storyline, God's revealing of himself on the pages of Scripture, the history of his dealing with his people, we find a growing and even full, an ever fuller and more complete picture of who our God is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the same God as the Israelites. He was the same, same in kind. He has not changed. But now Israel is to know him in a deeper and fuller sense. He would be revealed to them in a more complete way through the Exodus. This new dimension would be at the heart of who Yahweh is. Abraham entered into the covenant with God. He was to be the father of a great nation. Now, it didn't happen in his lifetime. He was to possess the land that he, he now was in as a sojourner, as a nomad. Still 400 years, and not, even his descendants aren't in that land yet. And the promise is that God Almighty will do this. Now, here is the nation promised Abraham, the multitude of people, but they are slaves in a foreign land. No longer will broad stroke pictures of, of the promise be adequate. How will this people become a nation who dwells in the land that God has promised? The answer to this question is encapsulated in verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> And in these verses, we find uh, seven statements, what I call I will statements. You'll notice as I read it here, as I read verses 6 to 8 again. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. <clears throat> I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Though there are seven of these I will statements in verses 6 to 8, what we find, I think, are basically 
four promises being made. The first two, I will, speak of, of liberation. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. <coughs> Excuse me. At the most basic level, this is what salvation means. Being freed from bondage or delivered from slavery. For the Israelites immediately, it is the bondage of Egypt. But of course it is also the picture of the bondage of sin under which they now suffer and of which we have suffered without Christ. The main thing the Israelites need is to be rescued was from the bondage. And when God said, I am the Lord, he was promising to be their deliverer, to be their liberator. The second promise, the third I will, is redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Redemption is a financial term. In the ancient marketplace, it was used to describe the release of a slave by payment of a ransom. Later, this became part of biblical law. If an Israelite had to sell himself into slavery in order to pay his debt, his own family members could redeem him by paying the price of his freedom. The interesting thing here is that in the case of the Exodus, the Egyptians were the ones who ended up paying the price. Israel was redeemed with mighty acts of judgment. And God himself was the redeemer, releasing his people with an outstretched arm. In biblical times, redemption was always the right of a near kinsman, that is to say a family member or a close relative. And what we see here is that God was eligible to redeem the Israelites because of his kinship with them. This is where verse, the fourth, excuse me, this is where the fourth and fifth I wills come into play. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. When it says, I will take you as my people, the word take here really means to adopt. So the fourth and fifth I wills contain this, this promise of adoption, this family promise is at the heart of the covenant in which God takes us to himself to be his people and gives, us, gives himself to us to be our God. In the Exodus, God proved his fatherly affection. Uh, when Moses first goes before Pharaoh in chapter 4, <clears throat> um, he, he speaks Yahweh's words to Pharaoh, and he says, Israel is my firstborn son. Yahweh saying, Israel is my firstborn son. And so when he brought his son out of slavery, it was not just simply a stroke of justice. It was also an act of love. The Exodus shows us that the mighty God loves his people, and he will demonstrate that love by his redeeming of them. The last two I wills uh, concern what we would call the promise of possession. 
I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The land was another promise of the covenant that God had given to Abraham 400 years previous, but now it was about to be realized, finally. And we can see why this whole section of these seven I wills is introduced by the word therefore. It makes logical sense with the end of verse 5, where we read, I have remembered my covenant, therefore. And because I have remembered my covenant, all the covenant promises will be yours. One commentator has called these seven I wills the seven I wills of salvation. In them, God proves that he is Lord by saving his people, liberating them, redeeming them, adopting them, and giving them a land of their very own. Without getting lost in the details, it is important for us not to miss the main point, which is that salvation belongs to the Lord. From beginning to end, every aspect of the Exodus was to be accomplished by God's mighty hand and God alone. God promised to bring his people out of Egypt and to free them from bondage. He promised to take them to himself and make them his own. He promised to give them a land for their possession. The only thing left was for the Israelites to know him as their Savior and Lord, as the God who also, pro- <clears throat> as, as God also promised they would in verse 7, where we read, Then you will know that I am your Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. God has saved the Israelites by his sovereign grace. And of course, the same is true with salvation in Jesus Christ, which is, after all, the greatest exodus of all. The exodus is not simply the history of ancient Israel. It is also the story of our salvation. As we listen to exodus, we hear the first strains of a melody that becomes a symphony in the Gospels. Jesus is the liberator who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 1.5 Jesus is the redeemer who paid the costly price of our sins on the cross. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 1.7 It is also through Jesus that we are welcome into the embrace of his divine love. For it is to the church of Jesus Christ that God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16 At the end of all our days, Jesus is the one who will bring us to the land of glory. By his resurrection, 
We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1.4. The Bible summarizes by saying that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All that is left is for us to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, to rest, to, to, to revel in that position that we have. Salvation is not about us doing something for God. It is about what God has done for us in Christ. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about it as we look at a new year. <clears throat> um, in the prayers this morning, I understand that you have some of the issues I have. What looks ahead doesn't look particularly good. This world seems to be coming apart. Our nation seems to be coming apart. We as followers of Christ are more and more despised. How do we face that? How do we live that out? How do we, we maintain a, a, a witness of life and word that is both forthright and compassionate and caring? How do we do that? Because it's going to be tough. There are going to be days when you say, God, what are you doing here? <laughs> You're making it worse, not better. And we are to remind ourselves who is the God of history. And it is the God of history who is the God of our salvation. The God of our exodus. We need that reminder over and over and again. Hebrew's idea, the Hebrew idea of repetition is one that we need as human beings. We need to hear the gospel that God saves us. We need to live in that gospel. And we need to live in this world as gospel people, as light and as salt. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way your word comes to us in the activity that you have done for your people in the past and reminds us of what you have done for us in the present. Lord, we are easily distracted by the crud all around us. We are easily distracted by some of the, uh, the temptations all around us. Lord, let us see Jesus. Let us focus our, our lives and our hearts on him and him alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> we come now to the, the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, the table that Jesus established for his people. Uh, the table for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus for salvation, who rests in Christ alone, who doesn't rest in 
what you have done, what you have accomplished, but you, you rest in the good work of the cross. We, we remind ourselves, this is a remembering institution. It, it reminds us of what's at the center. Uh, we've heard the gospel in word. We now see it in a sense enacted before us, calling us to follow him, reminding us, yes, this world is a daunting place in which to live, but I have overcome the world, and it is in him that we have hope. We come as weak and frail to be strengthened, to be nourished, to feed in spirit on the Christ, our Savior, and to be sent out to be his people, his light and salt in this world. So let us come this morning thinking seriously about what it's, it's pictured for us, but joyfully remembering that God has determined that we should be his people. He has taken us to himself. And he has given himself to us to be our God. Just a word of caution here. If you have not yet come to that place in your life where you are ready to rest and trust in Christ alone, I'm going to encourage you to pass these, uh, this bread and this uh, cup by. Uh, because we're told in Scripture that, it, that, that if we eat it not believing, not in a worthy manner, what we actually do is not feed ourselves, but we bring judgment on ourselves. I, I, it's something I don't actually like saying, but I'd be remiss if I didn't. But if you are God's child, not if you are perfectly God's child, but if you are God's child by Christ's blood, come eat, and be nourished. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we come now to this meal that the Lord set before us, we thank